The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. From the elements, from time and space, created from silence. Silence is the source of all that exists, the unfathomable stillness where vibration began the first oscillation, the first word from which life emerged. Silence is our deepest nature, our truest nature, our home, our common ground, our peace. Silence reveals, silence heals. Silence is where God dwells. We yearn to be there, we yearn to share it. And yet, in our present culture, silence is something like an endangered species, an endangered fundamental. The experience of silence is now so rare that we must guard it and treasure it. This is especially true for shared silence. Sharing silence with others is a political act. Silence brings us back to basics, to our senses, to ourselves. It locates us. Without that return, we can go so far away from our true natures that we end up quite literally beside ourselves. We live blindly and act thoughtlessly. We endanger the delicate balance which sustains our lives, our communities, and our planet. I believe that each of us can make a tremendous difference. Politicians and visionaries will not return us to the sacredness of life. That will be done by ordinary men and women who gather neighbors and friends together and say, Remember to breathe, remember to feel, remember to care, remember life. Let us do this together for ourselves and our children and our children's children. Good evening. Zen is first light. When the universe was still dark and void, and the words, let there be light, was uttered, Zen revealed itself and continues to reveal itself right here, right now, pervading the entire universe. Zen is sutra the Buddhist term for thread, which runs through everything like a stream. Zen is a bridge between one shore and what the Buddha called the other shore, that place unfamiliar only to those who choose not to make the journey, who choose not to cross the bridge. But for those who do, upon arriving, 
on the other shore such metaphors as I'm home is true. Zen is an invitation, a timeless, seamless invitation which knows no boundaries, which speaks in the hearts of not only human beings, but its light and its myriad of forms and manifestations that exists now, past, and future. It is an invitation to remember. It is a challenge to return. It is awakening. It is what Buddhists call our true nature, our original face, our true self. Zen is not a religion. Yet, truly religious in nature is the Buddha Dharma, the path of the truly awakened person, the Bodhisattva, the enlightened one, which each of us, without exception, because Zen is thread, seamless and timeless, are this very moment, whether realized, actualized or not. When we talk about what Zen is, we talk about incomparable, minutely subtle, profound, and can only talk about it in the way that the ancient masters spoke of it when they said, anything we say about it is nothing more than the finger pointing at the moon. And so in Zen, we are challenged to remember a fundamental, to remember what we were born with, rather than that delusion which develops over time for each of us without exception, born of, if you will, the forgetfulness of who we truly are and the ignorance of what we truly are. When ignorance sets in, as it does for all of us, we forget. We forget not only who we are, we forget our origin. We forget our destiny. We forget ourselves. And in forgetting ourselves, we forget each other. The writer tonight says to us, remember to breathe. Remember life. Remember to care. Remember to be truly who you truly are. Remember who that is. Or as I often tell my students, you are Buddha, act accordingly. But in time, each of us, myself included, the Buddha included, the prophets, Moses, Jesus, whoever is human, forgets that, forgets who they are. And Zen now becomes that vehicle, Mahayana, the great vehicle that when we choose to take, returns us to that memory, returns us to what wasn't in the past, but is now and always was, beginningless past and endless future. So when we talk about choosing the Zen path, 
when we talk about the Buddha Dharma, we talk about a choice we make to cross that bridge, to go home, to remember, and then when the ancient masters are asked by their own students what follows enlightenment, they always replied, 10,000 more hours of meditation, 10,000 more hours of silence, because of its vulnerability and its preciousness. We need to protect it. We need to nourish it. Nourish it. We need to be it from moment to moment. Each of us, as the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, were born with this inherent knowledge of what I am only talking about right now. Each of us were born with the wisdom within this inherent knowledge of this true nature, this original face. Zen training, Zen practice, like Zen itself, is the means by which the spark is brought about and the light is revealed. Not a light from the past that diminished over time and needs to be relit, but a light that has only been hidden from us by our own ignorance and own obsession or attachment to the delusion, the dream that the Buddha referred to when he spoke about awakening from the slumber of fear, worryment, attachment, greed, resentment, and folly. Zen is not a religion, but it is truly religious in nature. It is religious in the way that I first defined for myself as a very young boy the meaning of that word, to be religious. And it wasn't where you might think. It happened in the backyard of my grandfather, Skaruzi, in South Philadelphia, while he was picking his tomatoes from a vine. It was a bright sunny day. As I close my eyes, I can see me there with Grandpa Skaruzi. And he was picking his tomatoes to make the gravy for the family. And the sun just was right on his hand as he went to pick one of the biggest, ripest tomatoes I had ever seen, even since then. And I watched him gently break it from the vine and hold it in his hand in the way that I have held my five-year-old daughter ever since she was an infant and have seen mothers and fathers hold theirs. And I remember watching him bring the tomato to his lips while he kissed it and spoke to it in Italian and gently placed it into a basket. And we went inside to his small kitchen in South Philly and he began to prepare the tomato to place it in the pot to make the sauce. And I watched him very carefully with the one cheapest looking yet sharpest looking knife he had. Slice that tomato and prepare it for what later would become communion with the family. It was that day to be religious was defined for me. To hold life as the Buddha Dharma teaches us as this precious vulnerable moment when gone forever gone to hold it with reverence and awe 
because even today, with all of the technology and all of the advancements in science and philosophy, the one single question still cannot be answered. What is this? And how does this happen? And how does it sustain itself? We know a lot about how to stop it. We know a lot about how to end it. And in fact, we don't know much about that either because of its vulnerability. It is so easily wiped out in a moment. Why we do not see for ourselves the precious, vulnerable life we hold and understand that we are all called to live it religiously. And in living it religiously, we come to see, as the ancient Zen masters would say, we come to obtain a knowledge of life that can only be known by seeing it directly. And then the moment you try to talk about it, you are wrong and you have forgotten again. I chose this little book that I have had for maybe 30 years and its reading because I remember the first time I read it and I knew it, I felt it, I tasted it, I heard it, I smelled it, in my bones, in my flesh, in my body. Silence is a word about a deep and profound wisdom, a place we all yearn to be and yet at the same time fear only because of our ignorance. Tonight I chose this topic as our final Zen chat here at Yoga for Living, specifically and purposefully. Because if there is any message that I have had, and my dearest friend and monk who I ordained many years ago, who's watching my daughter tonight, used to say to me on occasion when we would sit around after Sashin or something in my home, she would say to me, Roshi, I've known you now for 28 years, and I listened to you today say the same thing you said to me 28 years ago, but only in one of those 500 languages you speak. So my message has always been the same, and it, has a mess it is a message that was not born of anything I ever read or anything I had ever tried to understand but of the same experience that I yearn to be near every time I take to the cushion. And every time, like earlier today, I sat outside and just listened to the wind, the pine wind, at Jizuan Monastery in Shemang. The message is the same. We are all here for one purpose, to realize and awaken our inner divinity and to manifest our own enlightenment in the world so that the whole world can wake up and remember too. So the question might arise, how do we cultivate this Zen mind? And for many of us, the idea of cultivation brings up an aggressive stance. There's something that has to be acquired. Roshi mentioned in the earlier part of his talk so far that there's nothing new to acquire, that what we need to do is to let go of the accretions that cover the original face. So how would that look for us in terms of our practice in cultivating the silence? 
Uh, there is a practice called the Huatos practice in Chinese Zen, which is to try and rest in the primordial mind state before a thought arises. That's if you're standing by a mouse hole, your cat standing by a mouse hole, waiting for the emergence of a thought. And should the beginning of a thought occur, to reduce that thought back into the consciousness, undifferentiated consciousness from where it comes, and to slowly cultivate the stillness in that way. The contemplation also of where sound arises is a venerable old Buddhist practice of pursuit of the original face. When I offered my brief uh, chant at the beginning of the program, there is an invitation not only to listen to the music, but to listen to the silence in between the music, in between the notes of the music, and more so to listen to the, the uh, space that arises at the end of a sung phrase. There's a um, poem by Wallace Stevens which it's, it's part of his series called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And I'll paraphrase it. He says something like, I don't know which I prefer, the sound of the blackbird singing or just after, the inflections or the innuendos. So the inflections are the fascination that the mind has with intricate detail of that which is created. But the innuendos is saying there's something beyond what is given. There's a scent that's left behind when the music stops. There's a meaning that is conveyed beyond the meaning that can be construed. And this is the mystery of Zen, the reaching beyond the specific form. Uh, Zen painting, which is very spare and minimalist, pointing to the space in which the small characters and the inconsequential apparently inconsequential scenario takes place as we're invited into the space which sustains them. Space which sustains them. So 40 years in March of next year, I have repeatedly said to my students, the work ahead is about discerning between what you've brought with you and what you've picked up along the way. This remembering is a memory of who we were at that moment we often refer to as birth. Yet all Buddhist teachings speak of the fact that that too is a illusion. For there is no beginning, let alone an end. That like Catholic school taught me we are as infinite, timeless, and ageless as God, each of us. But yet, this illusion dominates our thought, dominates our consciousness. And it is that moment, that place, again, the actual place and the actual moment serving only as a metaphor, but it is that awareness we were born with and never leaves us that is the work. Rumi once said about love, he said, your work is not to go and find love somewhere, in someone, someplace, or some event, but rather your work is to first identify all of the mental and psychological 
and emotional barriers you have built up in your lifetime, preventing you from seeing love right here, right now, and to dismantle those barriers. This is the true work of any authentic spiritual practice. The dismantling of the illusion, which includes who I have come to believe I am. One of the problems that I experience, both as a spiritual director and a counselor, came to me the other day while meeting with one of those individuals that come to me for direction. And in our conversation together, as she shared with me the horror of her life experiences that she had gone through, it came to me that this work is about helping her remember who she is. But the problem is that her memory, as the writer suggested, is some distant thing that the work involved will require a lifetime, possibly, for that to take place. But from the Zen master's point of view, a lifetime, again, seamless and timeless, beginningless and endless. We are always, either, as Pema Chodron suggested, operating from a place of openness that allows us to recognize ourself everywhere pervading the entire universe, or we are operating from a place where we have shut down, preventing us from seeing right in front of us, and worse than that, within ourselves. And so when we talk about the religiosity, as I call it, of Zen, that religious nature of it, we need to relearn, as I tell my students, how to approach this simple practice of living life right here, right now. One of the first things you notice in any real practice in the very beginning or at least shortly after is that much of our way of living, the stuff we operate from in the course of the day, is always distracting us from here, from now. It is always going somewhere or coming from somewhere and wanting to go back there. We live lives of distraction. We are either conscious of that or not. Nonetheless, we do. In the practice of silence, as Robert described in his example of the ancient Chinese practice, the work involved includes disciplining mind to stay here when our conditioning or the stuff we've picked up along the way would have us, again, move somewhere else. And one of the reasons why we are always distracted, where we are always going off somewhere, where we are always wandering into the future or into the past, is the ignorance that the Buddha spoke about. When we don't know who we truly are, one of the lessons of that conditioning is that who we are right now is not sufficient. That life we have right now is not sufficient. And if you take a look at the enormity of that daily distraction, we are never satisfied. 
even when we arrive where we think that satisfaction is to be discovered. This egocentric, fearful, ignorant part of our consciousness convinces us we need to move on again. We need to look over there. We need to find this. We need to have that. Zen is a challenge. As again, in the words of the writer, we yearn for, and yet at the same time, fear the most. Someone once wrote, it is not our incapacity, or it is not our lack, it is not our darkness we really fear. It is our light. It is our light we fear. And Rumi once again said, if you have a light in your heart, if the light in your heart is always lit, you will always find your way home. So it is not the darkness we fear. It is not our incapableness that we have come to learn through our conditioning, which is in itself illusion, because the Buddha described this as infinite fields of energy with infinite potential, unlimited, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the story we may have about our lives, as horrific as that may be, at any moment we can realize and actualize that infinite potential within each of us to remember, to awaken, and to live, as I tell my students, probably for the second time in your life. And hopefully this time you will keep living as who you truly are and in harmony with your true purpose to realize your inner divinity and to manifest your own enlightenment in the world. Or as I prefer to talk about it at the monastery, to live your life as a benefit for others just by living your life and not the one you have come to believe you are expected to live. An expectation laid upon us certainly by external sources, but reinforced and strengthened by ourselves alone each time we refuse to stop, become quiet enough to just look and see, see how untrue it really is. There's a uh, simple exercise that a person can do. When we speak about the um, distractions of the mind that keep us from experiencing the innate perfection and openness of the current moment, when we get distracted, we lose the essence. Now, if you look at any desire that happens in your mind, the only way we understand our fulfillment will be in the fulfillment of getting that desire satisfied or in getting the, the element of aversion avoided. And what's actually happened is not that we have any real connection with the object, but that the mind goes forth and assumes its own separativeness from the individual. And when that condition is achieved, we're restored to our original nature, which we've never left in the first place. 
So it's not so much when you get your shiny bicycle that the fulfillment is about the bicycle. The fulfillment is about the lapsing of the desire for the bicycle. I leave it with that. Any questions? father was into roses. He was from Turkey. <coughs> and it was very beautiful to watch him with his with his rose garden. His grandfathers are cool. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. You mentioned Bodhi Bodhisattva. Uh, are they is Bodhisattva realized in a way? Can you explain what a Bodhisattva is? <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? There's <laughs> <laughs> a hand back there. Hi. Hello, Roshi. Is desire good or bad? It is what it is and nothing else. I'm saying. But if we need to talk about the goodness of it or the badness of it, we need to reduce it to what's so. And by that I mean, if it is causing suffering, we want to do something about that. If it isn't, have fun. Okay? I'd like to add a tagline to that. I think the work in practice is to become is to understand the movements of the mind. Not necessarily to label them as good as or bad, but to understand what is happening when a moment of desire arises, or a moment of aversion arises. And, and how does that shift, how does the consciousness change, or appear to change? And what's our relationship to that? Because in the long run, Zen practice, which is just the practice of the cultivation of stillness, is not really enough. The stillness is uh, to be cultivated so that we can inquire into the nature of experience. And it's that inquiry that yields true insight, and it's the insight that ultimately sets us free. So tagging Robert, as he said, the stillness serves as a conducive environment to make that inquiry. So in desiring and discerning or bringing discernment to desire at the moment as it is present, when we let go of making it good or bad, we're left with the space between that, as Robert referred to earlier. We're left with that space. So when there is no left or right, up, down, good or bad, we are left with the space. That space is the conducive environment for inquiry. There, we get to see it for what it is. As I said, it is what it is and nothing else. And we get to see how mind is holding it and operating with it. And when we see that, everything we need to know about it is also revealed. So Zen training, Zen practice, 
authentic spiritual practice and training is about understanding how mind is operating from moment to moment. So we have this conducive environment. A zendo, for example, if, when you come to Pine Wind, we do 99% of everything we do in the zendo. Because it is a conducive environment, it is a space designed for silence. Therefore, in that silence, we have then the first fundamental, that conducive space to make that inquiry. When we are trying to understand desires from a place of right and wrong, good or bad, that is like, you know, again, the carpenter using a hammer when it would be better to use, you know, a, a screwdriver for, the, for the, what is needed, okay? So the Buddha talked a great deal about skillfulness, that much of the learning process in this training is learning how to do this skillfully. So the skillful approach to dealing with desire is to first cut off what I call the bureaucracy of ego that wants to look at it from a good or bad place. Once that is cut off, and silence is the means by which we cut that off, then we get to see it in a, in a place and in a space that all of that uh, cognitive thought about it, all of that judgment and all of that criticism, good or bad, prevents us from seeing. That approach is what Rumi meant when he said the dismantling of the emotional and psychological barriers that prevent us from seeing what is so. Okay? Is that helpful? Yes, thank you. Thank you. There's a saying which goes, um, Zen is above morality, but morality is not beneath Zen. Now, many of us associate our religious teachings with moral codes. You do this, you don't do that. Your question springs from that place. Is it good or evil? Therefore, should I indulge in it or not? And this is fine from a conventional mindset to train the individual to certain kinds of social behavioral norms, but unfortunately it ends up ending in creating ethical people, which is a, a worthy goal in itself. But eth ethics is not per se enlightenment. The enlightened one will act ethically, but if we get stuck on our, on our moral codes, we don't understand those as preparatory for developing the instrument for looking into the truth of things. And it's the inquiry which is the essential matter again. and the means or tools we use for that inquiry. One of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, when he was asked what a human being is, he said, you are loving kindness. You are compassion. And when I hear what Robert just shared with us, clearly we have numerous examples where morality so often has become the tool for harm, the tool for vicious and horrific acts of hum in humanity down through history. Lao Tzu once said, be aware, be fearful of the moral man because he will find justification to do 
horrific things to other human beings. So Zen is above morality, but morality is not beneath Zen because morality in the world of Zen is something far more deeper than a belief system about behavior. It comes from a deeper and again more profound place within us that we have covered over down through the years of our lives as part of our conditioning, as part of our journeying away from that original place. We have forgotten and replaced with, again, these moral codes that are not used for the purpose morality and ethics is intended in the Zen life. Again, everything, as I tell my students at the monastery, everything is practice. Therefore, practice everything. Everything is intended to teach us, including the moral code we refer to as the sacred bodhisattva precepts. So often mistaken as commandments, these are means towards, again, cultivating the ground, <coughs> cutting through the conditioning, and opening up the heart so that that natural identity, that true compassion we were born with, that true love for others and for ourselves rises and is realized and actualized. So again, when we talk about living moral or what the Buddha called noble lives, we are talking about, again, something that rises from within us and is not necessarily something that is given to us to abide. Certainly, I'm confident because I have met them. Numbers of people have done this from living that moral code either in religion or in their culture when, uh, given to them. But again, when I have inquired into that experience for them, it has been similar to what I said a moment ago. All the code did for them was awaken an appreciation for life, awaken a reverence for life, and most especially the vulnerability of life. I say life is sacred not because our religions say it is. It is sacred because of its vulnerability. It is so easily gone, and when gone, forever gone. Why would we want to act any other way with it? That quality of vulnerability is obviously just the opposite of hardness of separation. And yet you'll see that many religious practitioners in their espousing of spiritual development are developing not vulnerability, but, but coolness and distance and separation and control. And it's true very much in the Zen world too practitioners, early practitioners, can very often get stuck in a self-separative stance as a way of saying, my ground is safe, I'm not affected by your problems, I avoid desire, therefore I'm okay. But what may not be recognized in that stance is you may have avoided desire, but you haven't avoided aversion. <laughs> and that's equally a problem. So how do we cultivate equanimity, which is not a cold, hard equanimity? How do we develop, vulnerability is a perfect word, um, 
for those of you might be anyone might be familiar with a woman's work named Brene Brown. She has a uh, she has a um, a TED talk that went viral on the very topic of vulnerability, and uh, it might uh, be of interest to you to look that up at some point. Brene B R E N E Brown. So much of our cultural influence and education has taught us to live from what I believe is the fruit of ignorance, and that is this extreme individuality. And the late great Trungpa Rinpoche wrote a fantastic book called Spiritual Materialism, where he warns us that ego can use anything for its benefit, including spirituality. And so, so often, and this is part of what I have felt for 40 years now, my life mission, I tell people I'm not a teacher, I'm a spiritual mythbuster. So who are you going to call? <laughs> and one of the problems with contemporary spirituality, especially in the West, is this very thing whereby we practice spiritually or religiously to make that corner of life we occupy safe and secure. But in his wisdom, the Buddha spoke about this three-pillar model or foundation for the spiritual life. It involved, again, realizing and operating from a place of your Buddha nature, your enlightened nature, and so he said, we take refuge in that. Working and operating from a place of well-honed and proven techniques to live life skillfully and to achieve this awakening, he called Dharma. So we take refuge in that. And in his wisdom, he understood that the last, but certainly not least, part of that foundation was the Sangha, which is the relationship between the members of that community practicing and working together, not for their own enlightenment alone, but for the enlightenment of all the many beings, which is the work of the Bodhisattva. To live my life as a benefit, the Bodhisattva, which is the highest consciousness, each of these different terms in Buddhism actually point to a level of consciousness. And so Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is considered the highest, the Mahasattva, the top dog. And Avalokitesvara weeps because she has dedicated her life to free all beings from suffering, but realizes she cannot do it alone, realizes she cannot do it for them. And when you take a look at the statue of Avalokitesvara, she holds an urn that is tilted, and it is held near her heart. And the symbolism there should be obvious, that she pours from her heart the hopes and the compassion that all beings may be free from suffering and the many causes of suffering. Zen by nature is relational. Any spiritual practice that separates us from others, that is about getting what I think I need or want, 
is preposterous. What am I? How am I saying that? Preposterous. Thank you. Preposterous. Thank you. You know where that word comes from? Pre and post. It's putting that which comes after before. There you go. Okay. Preposterous. I did it. Thank you. I haven't even had a drink yet today. And so forth. So. It is, again, part of that ignorance that spirituality is intended to break, to cut through. We are not separate. Again, I was talking about this the other day in this counseling session because I witnessed it for myself in the birth of my own child in that ER, in that uh, delivery room. And I watched my daughter, first of all, reach out and grab this finger on my hand at the day, on the moment of her birth, after the doctors had cleaned her up and everything, and Len had delivered her for us, thank you again, and so forth, reached out and wrapped her finger around my finger. But then when I brought her over to her mother, I watched her move into her mother, move into her embrace, to her hold. We are hardwired for relationship. We are relational beings. And any true spiritual practice is by nature relational. Why we would practice or make any effort of practice for ourselves alone is again uh, mind-boggling to me. We are called to be in relationship with life, not as some kind of um, idea, but life as it really is. And life as it really is Look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look around you. This is life, each and every one of us. John F. Kennedy said in one of his famous speeches, in the end, we all share the same thing in common. We all occupy the same planet. We all yearn for the same things for ourselves and our children. We all want to love and to be loved. Why we would ever look at each other and think, stranger can only be a function of the ignorance the Buddha said our work is to resolve and correct and this silence when I am quiet and I am looking at the space between what's next and now makes that clear for me every time this afternoon Matsumiko and I sat by the pond outside the entranceway to Jizo Hall, where now live somewhere around the number of 15 frogs along with the fish. And we were able to point out each one of those frogs sitting in one position or another. And then as we became quiet and just sat on the bench and listened, we looked at each other for one moment, and I saw in her eyes what she saw in mine. And then we just decided, to go inside. There was nothing to be said. When we stop and really look at each other, we see what we yearn for. The work is to know how to actualize that now and every now, from here on, now, and so forth. Before it is gone, forever gone. Questions?
Hi. 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 You bring good people. You must have come because of him. <laughs> good to see you. Hello. It's been a long, too long. Too long. We are we. When the memory. Who we are. I'm sorry. When we're remembering who we are, are we going back to the moment of birth or before? Once again, when we talk about it in this kind of linear experience that includes the moment of birth and the moment of death and everything in between, uh, it makes it difficult to answer your question. Mm. So I'll, I'll do my best. And then I'll let Robert correct me. Okay? <laughs> At the moment of birth, we bring with us that infinite knowledge that is beginningless and endless. What appears to be a moment of birth is the observer in his or her ignorance, or in my attempt to remember setting in the equation. Okay? So back to the fundamental. You are now Buddha, you were Buddha when you were born, you were Buddha before you were born, and you will be Buddha after you die. There's the time frame. Okay? So we awaken to what is so. In the enlightened mind, birth and death is all part of that illusion. Okay? But we still need to talk about that in an effort to point to where we need to remember. You see? So I am real clear because I watched Katie, my daughter, for the last five years tell me what that was. Okay? Remind me what that was. And I'm only beginning now to watch her slowly forget. I had the same experience. Yeah. So another name for that, what Roche is saying, is the Buddhist doctrine of the two truths, the relative truth and the absolute truth. The relative truth being the storyline of, you know, my gravestone says born January 18th, 1943, and whatever the death date would be. And then we tell a story about that. It's all a likely story, because there are no ultimately totally true stories. But the absolute truth is the truth of our origin, which is common to us all, which transcends space and time. And that's what we're trying to awaken in the Zen moment, in the Zen consciousness. However, once there is some awakening there, we have to, the, the 10,000 hours of practice after enlightenment are to bring down from the absolute domain into the relative domain enlightened understanding, how to act with, with the light of the absolute. Now, one misunderstanding of that is to break all the forms in the relative world because they're understood as merely relative. But how do we take good care? And, and for instance, the tea ceremony, which is a practice of, of Roshis. The tea ceremony is how we manifest the absolute within the relative. And then those distinctions begin to merge with each other, the absolute and the relative. In hearing Robert make reference to that ceremony, what lit up in my head was, in that ceremony, which again is a 
both going on when it is and a metaphor for practice. It is about practice or how we do what Robert said. What came to me was that in each time I have done the ceremony, the activity of the ceremony itself has been an effort to express what words and actions alone cannot do. So what is motivating, you know, Rikyo, the father of the tea ceremony, said, all can find peace in a bowl of tea if you know how to make a bowl of tea and to serve it, you know saying. So what is the force behind that? Is it just, again, the learning of the technique, which is the, rel which is the relative truth that uh, the teachings point to? Certainly not. It is something that comes from deep within the tea person in an effort to express an ageless and timeless message to the guests in the manner in which they prepare that bowl of tea and offer it to them. And if you've ever witnessed a tea ceremony, if you haven't, you'll get an opportunity in the fall and winter at Pine Wind to see it. We did one here years ago. If you've ever witnessed the tea ceremony, it, mean, it requires from preparation to its actual you know, commitment to actually doing it, it requires the individuals to stop, to slow down, to become very quiet so that they can hear the present moment in that tea house as it is, smell it, taste it, feel it, and engage it intimately. And that's what spiritual practice is. It is intimate engagement. And that requires, back to uh, your question about birth, that requires something that, again, I witnessed in Katie as a father that affirmed my own assumption or conclusions we are born with. We know silence at birth and then we are ripped from it into a world of endless noise and distraction. That is why, again, the singular purpose of a Zen center, of a synagogue, of a church or cathedral, is to take you out of that flow of distraction and noise and replace you in a conducive environment to remember, even if for a few moments. But the Zen master's statement, 10,000 more hours, reminds us that we can't just be doing that on an occasional effort to find refuge. We need to do that every day. And we need to do it not only in the Zendo, the synagogue, the temple, the church, the cathedral, but right where we are. And that takes skillfulness, and that takes training, and that takes commitment and discipline. You know, the conventional point of view, which is constantly being, um, constantly being um, promulgated by the media, by television, puts us in a hypnotic trance that this is what reality is. And for convenience sake, we call that the conventional worldview. What we're trying to develop is an alternative to the, contemp the, the um, contextual, I'm sorry, the uh, conventional worldview. Conventional worldview accretes on top of 
the true perception. I'm just repeating now what's been said several times. That's what I've been repeating for 40 years. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Len. Thank you. So, oh, How would a, a person who really gets it, is experiencing it, how would that, that person's life kind of show up? And that, how would that influence other people's lives as well? Uh, before we came in here, Rob and I were talking about probably the singular person who launched me into this lifelong inquiry, Thomas Merton. And Merton in the 60s wrote numerous books. And in one of his books, he talks about how that person, <coughs> just by their presence in the world, keeps the world from totally annihilating itself. Okay? just by their presence. And he also talks about how the monastic, the monk, serves just by being present in the world. Just by being present. Now obviously, or maybe not so obviously, to everyone listening here, there's something about that presence. So I talk a lot about, at the monastery, did this past Saturday for that one day Zazenkai, I talked about and asked the question, what do you bring to your practice? Which can be expanded to, what do you bring to the people you meet every day? And this, again, ego, part of our consciousness, wants to think about a thing or an action. But what does it really mean to be a presence in the world that just by your presence and I, for me, the, first of all, the statement to live my life as a benefit is a context. It's a consciousness. It's an attitude. So um, on Saturday, I read Jimmy Carter's uh, statement about living his life purposefully. And when you read this, and I, not even gonna, I'm, I would not want to do it any harm by paraphrasing it, so I'll get right to what it says. When you read this, he talks about, he, believe, he comes from a place and he brings this attitude that the purpose of his life is to do for whoever, whatever, wherever, whenever he can, whatever is needed, and to do that until he dies. So the person who operates, again, first of all, has this understanding that they're in relationship with other people. And you, and, and, you know, there's no, even, even when, you know, like we closed down for a month in August at the monastery, and that's a time uh, when, you know, I'm supposed to take care of myself and get ready, and the students and the monks are doing the same. But again, why am I doing that? I'm doing that so that when everybody comes home in September, I can be for them, you see? Why do we take retreat? We take retreat to re-enter. The Japanese model for Zen training, when you look at the, what is called the ox herd metaphor, you know, we, we do all of this training not to stay on the mountain and to be blissful for the rest of our lives, but we train, and in Japan it's literally practice that you come and you train and you train, and then you're sent away back to the marketplace 
back into your life, back to your family, back to your business, and so forth. So that, again, this training has one singular purpose, to be a benefit in the world. So short answer, it would look like that person is always interested in what can I do. So in the tea ceremony, there is this preparation, and then there is this handing off. And it's handed off in such a way that the bowl and the hand, because there's no conversation in the tea house when the guests and hosts come together. There is just this behavior. And the tea master, he or she has hopefully achieved a level of understanding that just by the way they hand the bowl, prepare the bowl, which the guest is witnessing, makes a difference in that person's experience in that moment. They don't need to say anything if they know how to be present to that person in a way that just by the way they extend their hand to them. See? So, as I hear Robert again repeat a few moments ago, our whole culture distracts us from each other distracts us from ourselves. So it is no surprise that when you enter authentic spiritual consciousness, awareness, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's about seeing ourselves and finding out that once we do that we can see each other. And the, and the, and the paradox is I don't get to see me without seeing you saying so I want you know back to Jimmy Carter's words I want my words my actions my very presence to always say what can I do that's how that looks thanks Len there was a movie called Koya Niskatsi anyone seen it who what called Koyan Iskati. It's a long collage of holy places around the world and, and oh, yeah. uh, contemporary society. Is that how you pronounce that? I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember, there's a scene in there which is totally remarkable. It's in Japan. There's a monk in monk's robes walking down a crowded avenue with his bell. He'll take one step and he'll ring the bell. Take another mindful step and ring the bell. Meanwhile, all around him, is Japanese frenetic culture just endlessly moving around him. It's the most powerful juxtaposition I've ever seen of images. He's just totally centered. And he is like the still small voice crying out in the wilderness, pay attention, pay attention. And everyone else is totally distracted by where they're going, presumably, or what sent them forward. Very powerful. And that image is seen in the prophets, in the messiahs, in the buddhas, all throughout history because that is what they came to do pay attention and what was it they were pointing us to every time life because gone it is gone forever gone we need to remember how to pay attention Jesus says unless you become like a little child you can't see the kingdom of God which is everywhere you see the role of the prophet is to insert 
into that busy street in, uh, in Tokyo where the monk is ringing his bell and the crowds are just coming and going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Insert an opportunity like the prophets, like the messiahs, like the buddhas, like the great voices in our, in our history, an opportunity for us to hear what we have always heard and can hear at any moment when we become very quiet. That's the voice we want to hear. And you'll be surprised to hear it when you do as your own and everyone else's. I feel there's one omission from before which I'd like to go back to. Is this okay we have another few minutes? Mm -hmm. uh, when Roshi was talking about the importance of staying in relationship to other human beings, uh, yes, of course. But very often, people who come to this spiritual quest, particularly the Zen quest, come because of the first noble truth, the suffering of the human condition. And very often the suffering comes at the hands of our very vulnerability and the community in which we're trying to find love and the rejection from that community or the strife in that community or the rising up in oneself of the sense of injustice in that community. And so it's this initial aversion to community that we are trying to be close to but that's somehow repelling us to go outside the community to develop the wherewithal to be of service to the community. So it's a, it's a point I just want, didn't want to miss because the hero's journey, the hero absents himself from society, usually because of some kind of wound and or some kind of calling. But that calling once understood is an invitation, as Roshi said, to come back off the mountaintop and back into the marketplace. But in the process, don't forget the importance of the individuation process. Each individual is developing according to a broad pattern which is similar to other beings, but with specifics which are quite different. And as we learn to honor the uniqueness of ourselves, we embody more and more fully the absolute and can serve more fully other people in their relative truths as well as their absolute truth. And that is where we need to have clarity about the true definition of community. Community is not a place where we enter into union with others who kind of reform us into their image and likeness. True community, as you will find on our website, a quote that I've taken from the Benedictines for many years, is a, is a place where you are supported for however long necessary for you to make that journey, to make those transformations, in that time frame, you need to do that. It is a place where not only you are encouraged to do the work, but it is a place where, like I often say to my students over the years, when you leave here, you will go back into a culture and an experience that will forget who you are a lot. You can be assured that every time you come back here, I will never forget who you are. And so, Back also to a question on the good or badness of desire. Once again, from the Zen point of view, I say it this way to my students. Selfishness got you here. Without that, you would have never showed up. Mm -hmm. The paradox you need to remember, though, 
is this. It will not keep you here. And that is where the transition from this individual experience, separate and exclusive from the rest, in an authentic spiritual community, is transformed, where both the individual and the person in relationship with each other is fully embraced as the same person. So we embrace selfishness as a necessary tool without which no one would ever show up at my doors, without which I would have never taken the steps I did that has led to my life the last 40 years. But we need to remember that that's just the raft, I think, the Buddha was talking about. And he said in his own teaching, you know, the raft that gets you from one shore to the other, he said, no one carries the raft around with them, though, on the other shore. You need to some point, somewhere, put that down and rediscover the more of you that can only be discovered in relationship to others. So, you know, what I talked about earlier, or made reference to earlier, and Robert and I were talking about it, there is, you know, there's a friend of mine who passed away many years ago who was a childhood influence for me. He was kind of like my second father. <laughs> he used to say it to me this way, he was a naval guy, and he says, you need to learn how to live life like this, young man. One hand for the ship, and one hand for yourself. If all you are focusing on when the storm comes is yourself, the ship will sink and you will drown. If all you are focusing on when the storm comes is the ship, you will not see the wave coming to knock you off. So that is the balance. But remember, both hands, both hands are for getting the ship to its destination. And that destination is you and me. Let's take a break. Within each of us, there is a silence, a silence as vast as the universe. We are afraid of it, and we long for it. In our present culture, silence is sometimes, in our present culture, silence is something like an endangered species, an endangered fundamental. The experience of silence is now so rare that we must guard it and treasure it. This is especially true for shared silence. I believe that each of us can make a tremendous difference Politicians and visionaries will not return us to the sacredness of life. That will be done by ordinary men and women. We need only be deeply respectful of what is fundamentally true. And that is what we rediscover when we join in silence. The Zen metaphor that is well known among Zen circles of the finger pointing to the moon was said in a very different way to me by someone many years ago when he said, understanding is the booby prize. <laughs> we live in a culture and a society so obsessed with one of several different inquiries or forms of inquiries, that is to say that, again, cognitive approach
to asking the big questions in life. In Zen, silence is the tool. We can talk about it like the finger pointing at the moon, but what is always necessary is to understand what Einstein in his own words explained when he described the path of a scientific discovery. He said, for the scientists, there is this observation of the object and this debate that goes on for the scientists within himself and with other scientists. And this happens for a period of time until suddenly there is that aha experience. He said, the space between the debate about what is discovered and the actual discovery, the space is always silent. And that is why it is experienced as aha, something seen that the debate would not permit, something seen and known, and everything about it is revealed, again in that space we call silence. But again, as the writer suggests, we live in a culture that has devalued any notion of slowing down, stopping, and just being present to ourselves, to our environment, and to others. I often jokingly talk about it this way. If I were to call you next Friday night and ask you to come over, what inevitably will follow from you? What are we going to do? <laughs> and I say to you, nothing. No, no, not even that. <laughs> Nothing. And what inevitably follows is, let me get back to you. <laughs> and you never do. I know this is a fact because, again, as we talked about it on Saturday, my fellow monks who teach on Wednesday nights or who lead meditations when I'm not there, and even in my own experience, you should see what they're like when two people show up. They're like, Roshi, two people showed up. <laughs> we actually had two people sit with us tonight. We live in a culture where the practice of silence has been devalued, and in its devaluation, we continue to grow more and more apart from each other and apart from our own experience of who we truly are. One of the missions of the Zen Society and the temple in Chemung is to hopefully in the days ahead restore the value in people's minds. But again, it begins with, and I like these words used by the writer when she says, we need only be deeply respectful of what is fundamentally true. And that is what we rediscover when we join in silence. We need only be deeply respectful of these practices, these ancient techniques and teachings that didn't show up in the way we think about them today. Now, often when I think about yoga as it is practiced in the West, and I had this conversation with a very famous yogi whose name and history I won't mention so as not to impede the purpose of mentioning it, but I had this conversation with him one night and he said to me, he said, you know, the yoga practice in America is not the yoga of India. It is not the yoga of the yogis of India. And as he went on to explain that to me, he said to me, all of those postures 
came out of a deep devotion and commitment by these men and women to silence, to entering into themselves. And the postures became an expression of that experience, you see. The way it is often practiced in the West, he said, is people are trying to master the postures to get that experience. And that's not how it works. The same is true about spirituality practice, whether it be in Zen. So often the student gets caught up in the finger pointing to the moon, in the words about Zen. And somewhere along the line, the teacher, if he or she is of any credibility or value, reminds them over and over again that the validity of what we are talking about here tonight shows up afterwards and shows up in the practice, not in any understanding you may think or I may think we have gained by talking about it. And not to diminish the value of whatever that understanding may be, we need to remember that somewhere along the line, that understanding, like all becoming, must be transformed, and the instrument for that transformation is the practice itself. But the practice is not isolated to the cushion. In, in teaching mindfulness living to people, I often talk about how the cushion and the work we do on the cushion becomes a metaphor for the rest of the day or the techniques we bring to the rest of the day. And it's quite simple. In order to do what we do on the cushion or in the chair and enter into silent meditation, the first thing we need to do is to stop. And we need to look. And we need to become mindfully aware of what is so right here, right now. And just in that observation, because that was also part of Einstein's explanation, when he talked about how the object itself is somehow mysteriously transformed just by the observer observing it. So we live in a culture that believes a lot about doing in order to have, doing in order to have. And yet, from ancient times, since ancient times, from the very beginning, there has been this consciousness that has said, be still and know. And that's all that will be necessary. In Japan, they have a wonderful word for it. It became the title of my book, Kokoro, the heart within. In Japan, they say that in the West, we are obsessed with the notion that all knowledge originates here. But in the East, we know that all knowledge originates here. It is a matter of the heart. The true knowledge, the knowledge that makes a difference, is a function of the heart. This is where the wisdom lies. This is where the inherent hardwired knowledge of how to live life skillfully in any school of life, whether we're talking about spirituality, uh, life at the workplace, life at home with your spouse or partner, life on the street driving the car in heavy traffic, that the heart needs to be cultivated and nurtured in such a way so that whether on the cushion or off the cushion, we can bring that wisdom, that experiential knowledge to every activity. And that is where, going back to Len's question earlier, one's presence alone, how one says hello, how one says goodbye, how one says I love you. We are so ignorant of how our culture has 
completely misled us that we think the power is in the words and it's not it's in how we offer the bowl and how we have prepared it and that is always about the attention we give to the details so that is why so often especially with my daughter I say to her come here I want you to listen to me I want you to look at me when I say to you I love you and I want you to look for that the rest of the day when I'm not saying that to you. And hopefully, as a good father, I will be communicating that by the way I bring you your cereal before school, you know, say. And by the way I commit myself to not forgetting who you really are when you're not being who I want you to be. <laughs> and so, again and again and again, I say to you, this being the final evening here at Yoga for Living, the reason why it is is because one of my students and monks said something to me of great importance one day. He said, Roshi, you have always said talking is the finger pointing at the moon. Don't you think it's time to bring them home for the experience? And I agreed. The validity of our understanding, whatever that may be for you tonight, doesn't stop here. Do not accept the booby prize. It's only temporarily, temporarily gratifying, you see, as the final conclusion. Practice is everything. Everything is practice. We need to develop ways to live our lives in ways that, as the writer again says, and I won't misquote her, Gather neighbors and friends together and say, remember to breathe, remember to feel, remember to care, remember life. Let us do this together for ourselves and our children and our children's children. Let's get quiet.
So we leave this address tonight, our final Zen chat, to go home to Pine Wynn. And I want to again invite you all to our first open house in five years uh, on August 9th. If you've never been to Pine Wynn, you need to come and discover what it's all about. You need to come home and see how long we've been waiting and longing for you. And hopefully you will find it to be a place that for 15 years we have tried to create it to be, a conducive environment for remembering not only practice, but love and compassion and kindness, friendship, family, and community. So you should have gotten, if not, pick it up on the way out, a flyer on the date, August 9th, and I invite you all uh, to be there with us. If for no other reason, Zen people always have good food. <laughs> I'd like to share with you a story, and I hope you find it uh, as pleasant as I found it, even though it involves uh, the tragedy of what's going on in the Middle East right now. And I don't know, did anyone see the recent Bill Maher show? And part of his uh, stand-up line I thought was really special when he uh, was telling the audience that uh, before the Israeli army invaded the Palestinian territory, they uh, announced a three-hour truce or a ceasefire so that the Palestinians could collect their stuff and get their food together. And he asked the audience to think of this. It was as if they were saying to them, we're coming in to invade, but first eat something. <laughs> and he said, how Jewish, how more Jewish can that be, you see? So it reminded me when I heard, you know, heard that, heard that line of something my friend Len told me in his story about his wonderful father. And he used to always say, and I hope I quote correctly, that you have a good meal. <laughs> So I hope you all enjoyed the meal tonight, and I want to thank you for serving it. As always, as every time I get with, together with you, it has been a privilege for me, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Permit me before you go to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence, gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. And one more thing before you go. <laughs> There's a tradition at Pine Wynn that we established back in 1985 with family members. And Robert has been part of my family now for, I don't, it almost feels like forever. A dear friend who has been there with me through thick and thin darkness and light. And yesterday was his birthday. And so the way we say I love you at Pine Wynn is to embarrass you. <laughs> and so. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Robert, happy birthday 
to you. Now you can go. <laughs> <laughs>